Hello and welcome. This is Austin Bridges welcoming you to the LL Research Podcast in the Now, episode number 78. And LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. And toward this end, has two websites the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. During each episode, we respond to questions sent to LL Research from spiritual seekers like you, and sometimes we pick our own topics. Our panel consists of Gary Bean, Jim McCarty, and myself, each of us a devoted student of the Law of One. Your questions will allow us to explore the Law of One and related matters of metaphysical interest. We hope only to offer a resource that enhances your own seeking process. Please know that our replies are not the final word on these subjects. We ask each who listens to exercise their discernment and be sensitive to their resonance in determining what is true for them. If you would like to submit a question for this show, please do so. This humble podcast relies on your questions. You may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I am Austin, and we are embarking on a new episode of LL Research's podcast, In the Now. Gary and Jim, are you with us and ready to go? Yes. For the most part. <laughs> we'll see if the other part can catch up. All right, so... For the topic this week, uh, it was a self-chosen topic by me, and I think that it's something that I'm I'm kind of surprised we haven't talked about before. But I would like to dive into the uh, the holy trifecta of meditation, contemplation, and prayer. Kind of explore what these things mean to us and give our opinions on um, their usefulness and why they're important on the spiritual journey. Uh, so, I think that I'd start by explaining why these three things are connected. And I accidentally closed my document that uh, has the quote that I am referencing. So, let me get that back. Um, so, essentially, Ra sort of uh, talked about these three things as though they were connected in a lot of ways. They also talked about them as if they were different. But essentially, they first brought these three things up uh, as a sort of trifecta in um, is session 10, where they're giving the exercises, where exercise one uh, is the moment contains love, and then the exercise is to consciously seek that love, and then exercise two is to see uh, mind-body-spirit complexes as the creator, gaze within the mirror, see the creator, and gaze at the creation and see the creator. And then they say that the foundation or prerequisite of these exercises is a predilection towards what may be called meditation, contemplation, or prayer. And they say, with this attitude, these exercises can be processed. Without it, the data will not sink down into the roots or the tree of mind thus enabling and ennobling the body and touching the spirit. So, I think uh, we could maybe just start from the beginning at meditation and work uh, to contemplation and prayer. So, first I want to ask each of you, what is meditation for you? How would you define it and how would you describe it to, say, a beginner? Gary? There's a lot of ways to approach that question, a lot of valid answers. I think 
two of the key words that come to my mind at the beginning consideration of meditation is one, stillness, and two, listening. And what is it that becomes still? <clears throat> Our our consciousness might be considered to be a composite of a complex variety of energies, whether of the mind, the body, or the spirit. And um, there's a lot of chatter in the movement of that energy within the mind and the body, <clears throat> specifically. So the stillness contains the concept of collecting <clears throat> all those wayward and various energies, especially within the mind that may be focused on the future or the past or worry or anxiety, collecting all that into a single point of focus and letting a lot of that overactivity, really, and that compulsive activity, really, subside into a stillness, into a restful abiding in the present moment. And then there is a listening. Not listening with the ears, of course, but listening to the silence in the stillness. And then we'll leave the rest for more advanced discussion, but <laughs> I think that's a decent beginning. I think so, too. Uh, Jim, how would you describe or define meditation? Well, I would first comment that since the channelings for LNL Research, what became LNL Research, began in 1961, the primary message of the Confederation of Planets in the service of the Infinite Creator was that we should meditate, that we existed in a creation of unity that uh, contained all things. And if we would concentrate upon this focus, this uh, unity, that there would be a way that we could listen to the Creator. And I think that that is what we are attempting to do. We all have the Creator contained within us. Uh, Ross speaks of it specifically as the uh, Polaris of the self, the guiding star in the violet ray, if we are able to access intelligent infinity at that point, then we can become aware of the Creator in a very powerful and personal sense. We can become aware of the Creator in a less dramatic way in our daily meditations. And it's not so much that you will hear words, although that is possible too, but that you can feel a presence and you can focus upon that presence and become aware of your place in the universe as what you could see perhaps as uh, cells of a body of the One Creator. So within the meditative state, we have the opportunity to shed the daily cares and to retire to that still, that room, that inner room, and close the door behind us and feel that there is a greater presence that is waiting within us to express itself through us. And I think that Joel Goldsmith has got a really good quote that I'd like to share with you all. He says, in uh, meditation... We are seeking the grace of God, and nothing but the grace of God. This grace is not found in the human mind, nor is it found in such peace as the world can give. 
making statements and reading books about it do not bring it forth. These may be of assistance in leading us to a point where we are prepared in the silence to receive the grace of God, but it is meditation which lifts us to a state of spiritual apprehension where divine grace takes over. So I think this is our connection to uh, our true being. This is our connection to our home. This is a reminder that this world in which we live is not the true reality. This world is here to help us find that true reality by presenting us with the many things that Ra calls the uh, stuff of the third density illusion that uh, may confound us and perplex us periodically and give us the need to find a place where we can rest and let those cares fall away and put them into perspective. So for me, that's what meditation is. Thank you. I don't think I'd have a whole lot more to add to either of your answers except to just emphasize Gary's um, use of the word stillness. And I think that stillness is a key component to meditation and what meditation is, especially like in light of what you're describing, Jim. I think uh, that sort of thing requires a, a stillness in order to perceive that inner light or perceive what Joel Goldsmith called the grace of God. Um, and that was what meditation essentially does for us. The beginning stages of meditation for somebody who first starts meditating, I think, is just finding a way to reach stillness and have a base uh, from which to listen. So um, next I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, your personal experiences with meditation, what it does for you, or how you've experienced it on your path. Um, Gary, do you have any personal uh, things to say about meditation? I credit a lot of my own growth over the years, which has been significant to what little meditation I've been able to manage. Um, And that doesn't mean that I've I've never had a say an epiphany emerge in meditation. Certainly, the mind begins thinking, and there might be a little bit more clarity of thought, and actually there might be a little realization. But I've I have not had experiences like I've heard others describe. My consciousness, either due to lack of disciplined meditation or due to pre-incarnational programming or whatever the reasons. My consciousness seems pretty locked into um, the waking awareness state. I can achieve some level of relaxation to some extent, but I don't enter altered states. Um, I am always completely present and aware of the body, uh, which is not contradictory to meditation, but um, what I have experienced is relief from the torments of the mind and um, a sense that when you can begin concentrating and begin focusing and begin being present there's um, a power there and um, a feeling like your being is being collected and there's a strength within and you just kind of want more of that. You want to go deeper into that experience. Um, 
But due to the limitations of my meditations over the years, I haven't really given that the space in my life that it really needs to develop and blossom. Um, <clears throat> but that said, yeah, I guess that's a quick snapshot of my experience with meditation. How about you, Jim? Well, for most of my meditative life, I guess starting back in the early 70s, I would meditate once or twice a day for 15 or 20 minutes. And <clears throat> that was even during the raw contact. And then after the raw contact, Carla and I would meditate about the same. So it was sort of um, standard and uh, predictable. Uh, unfortunately, I must admit, for most of my time um, after the raw contact, I would use my meditation to plan my day. <laughs> and uh, that is something I've had to... Uh, balance in the succeeding years. Since Carla passed away, um, I was given a gift of um, a tremendous desire to accelerate my meditative practices because I saw that as being my path to the Creator and to doing the Father's will, which is what I feel is what each of us is trying to do. However you describe the Father, I describe the Father as the creator and the only male principle in the universe, all the rest of us are female because we receive from the creator the life-giving rays of each sun, each logos, and each galaxy. So this one principle of the God, the spirit, the presence, the father, is what we're all attempting to return to as we live our incarnations within the third density and the fourth and the fifth and so forth, it's a path back. And in our third density experience here, I've discovered that for me, the meditation is the foundation of my day. Um, there's nothing that inspires me more than a good meditation, and I don't think there's any such thing as a bad meditation. And if you like to meditate, you never have wasted time. If you're sitting in a doctor's office or a plane station or whatever, you can always meditate. You can do it eyes open or eyes closed. It really doesn't matter. But I've discovered that that chatter that we bring with us into uh, whatever we're doing, including the meditative state, eventually, if you uh, just keep on doing your practice, however it is that you... Uh, do your meditation, whether you're doing deep breathing or imaging or watching the breath or whatever it is, just keep doing that, that eventually that chatter does fall away. It may take a while, but when it does, it's most inspiring to feel the, uh, the silence and the peace and the focus. And I think that is part of the path to the Creator. I look at in meditation as being a, a way of building a path to the Creator deep within the heart of our being where we can access this um, all-embracing love and light that combines to create everything that there is in the universe. So I, um, I'm not a good meditator, but I am a persistent one. <laughs> and every little step forward means so much. Uh, when it takes a little less time to get to that one point, or that one point becomes more focused, or you feel the activation of the energy centers more uh, profoundly. Um, there's just nothing like it. It's better than sex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, just so the listeners have some context for your practice, what time do you start meditating in the morning? Uh, between 4.30 and 5. <laughs> and then what time does the meditation wrap up? Uh, a couple hours later. Yeah. Uh, Jim meditates more than anybody I know personally, but it is a... Uh, an impressive amount of meditation that he achieves. Um, but I did early in my own path uh, meditate for up to a couple hours a day because when I first discovered meditation and I first tried it, within the first week I immediately noticed the effects of uh, what it was doing for me and doing to me essentially is um, uh, giving me a new perspective on my experiences and allowing me to carry a more peaceful and, uh, I'd say, objective view of the events in my life. And so early, like at the very beginning of my spiritual awakening and I started meditating, I would get home from work and make some green tea and put on a light drum track in the background um, just to drown out the noise of my roommates and I would light some incense and I would sit in a chair with my eyes closed trying to concentrate on the drums or my breath for um, at least two hours sometimes and essentially what it did during that time was that uh, the jumble that would come up I would take as um, signposts of things that were wanting to be examined or looked at. And so I wouldn't necessarily always try to avoid thoughts. I would um, get to a place of silence and whatever thought popped up, try to balance it in a sense, try to look at it from a standpoint of acceptance. And normally these things would be arguments in my head that I'd be having with other people or uh, situations where I wish I could have acted differently or situations where I wish somebody else would have acted differently. And these things would just naturally come up and I would just sit with them, allow them to take place in my mind, but try to move my perspective from that of an experiencer to that of an observer. And doing that just resulted in this um, massive transformation in my life. It, uh, I went from being uh, somebody who was kind of plagued with anxiety and loneliness and um, stubbornness and uh, being a very argumentative and um, passive-aggressive person to uh, something completely different. I'm not saying I don't carry any of those traits anymore, but um, it is a, a stark difference of how I experienced life before and how I experienced after that. And eventually it kind of fell away. Uh, I didn't, I meditated less and less, and um, I still have a practice today. I try to meditate at least a little bit every day. And um, it, to me, it is a practice of. Um, more than anything, mindfulness. I'd say similarly to Gary, I don't typically experience elevated spiritual states from meditation. I don't necessarily think that the goal of meditation is elevated spiritual states. It can definitely be, I think, a result, but um, to me, I think mindfulness, which is a huge buzzword right now, but I think is a very legitimate and useful uh, idea, is probably the more 
immediate and beneficial thing that we can get from meditation is becoming aware of our capacity to observe our emotions and observe the events around us and um, carry a torch of compassion into those things rather than getting swept away in their current. And um, I wanted to touch on, Jim said there's no such thing as a bad meditation, which I do think is true. And so I think a lot of people get discouraged because their thoughts are always jumbled in their mind. And uh, one perspective that I found very useful uh, from that common complaint is um, that it's actually sort of like building a muscle. And so when you feel a lot of resistance in your meditation and you're constantly having to bring your focus back to the center, back to your breath or whatever you're using for focus, you're actually building a muscle similar to what resistance training with like weights would do. Uh, the stronger the resistance, the more um, that muscle is going to build. And so um, I think that is a useful uh, tip for anybody who is struggling. So, um, do either of you have any more thoughts on meditation before we uh, move on to contemplation? Yeah, I wanted to quickly bounce off your thought about uh, developing the muscle. Uh, I agree completely. Uh, the more that the attention wanders and the more that it's brought back, the more that one is, um, and this is where I'd bring in a, a, idea that is in the law of one, the more that one is strengthening the will, because it is a pure practice of working with pure will to gather and collect and focus the attention. And the more that one learns to do that in formal, say, sitting meditation or walking meditation, uh, the more that it can become habit throughout the day, that one becomes aware and learns how to bring the attention to the present moment in order to, as, as Awesome was saying, um, witness and observe and be with one's experience. And in that presence and in that being with is a space for compassion to be created and, uh, as Austin was saying, not be swept away. And the other quick component I wanted to add was that it's not just will that is being exercised in meditation, but I, it's also a practice of pure faith. And there's a quote um, Ra says somewhere, maybe you guys have it on your list, I don't remember it, but um, as we meditate we and collect our attention, we begin to observe the workings of the mind. And what is that observing but uh, a stepping back from uh, disidentification eventually even, a realizing that I am not my thoughts. Consciousness is so much greater than the content of consciousness that's moving through me right now. And in that detached witnessing space, one is literally practicing faith because one is moving beyond the mind into that which has no solid, uh, ob uh, into that which um, gives no object to stand upon. One moves into a, a mid-air of no frame of reference, really, um, into beingness itself. So that's all, will and faith. And along that same line of exercising the muscle that Austin was talking about, uh, 
maybe we could use the image as you're learning to meditate as the same as learning to play a musical instrument, maybe the violin or um, the trombone or whatever. It takes a while to learn how to do it well. And don't get discouraged when you have those thoughts that intrude and they seem to be always with you. Just keep doing what you're doing. As you're practicing it, the... uh, the habit, the, the muscle strength, as Gary was saying, becomes accustomed to making certain adjustments and uh, taking certain focuses and allowing a certain beingness to be aware of. And after a while, you discover that there are breakthroughs that you have, that, that you can get to a place that uh, gives you comfort and relaxation and even inspiration, feeling a connection to the world around you and, and to uh, the greater principles, say, of uh, compassion and uh, wisdom and inspiration. So just keep doing it and uh, develop the practice so that it becomes something that you look forward to. And um, I think that eventually you will learn how to play that instrument. <laughs> and um, Maybe you'll even give a concert one day. <laughs> what would a meditation concert look like? Everybody in the stadium meditating and feeling the presence of the Creator and beaming that love around the world and everybody picking up on that love and sending it back and forth, and all of a sudden we're in the fourth density. Maybe, maybe someday meditators will go on tour. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to, not to dwell too long on this, but I think we probably have a lot more to say about meditation than the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of uh, strengthening that muscle isn't something that I just came up with on my own, can't take credit for that. Um, I found it in a book that is actually called The Willpower Gene. And what Gary was saying actually is an uh, integral part of that take on meditation. The entire book is a very secular book. As you can probably tell by the title, it's trying to attribute a lot of our um, habitual nature and our ability to utilize willpower to sort of biological and genetic science in a sense. And it's a really interesting book. Um, It's not necessarily spiritual, but there was a small bit on meditation that I thought was the most interesting and useful part of the entire book. And that's sort of what I said. And so it's related to what Gary was saying about this being a way of strengthening the will. The author, I can't remember her name, um, basically referenced that and that saying people... The idea of will and the idea of willpower is that there are these sort of long-term goals that we know are at the heart of our being, that we know we want to achieve, but we sort of have these short-term habits or short-term, you could even say weaknesses, that detract or deter us from that path. And so constantly bringing your attention back to that center point actually 
is akin to bringing your attention back to long-term goals and being able to gently guide yourself away from these short-term sort of distractions or desires and focus on the long-term goal, which in the sense of spirituality and like what uh, Gary and Ra were talking about is this willpower and this will that is integral to um, truly magical service to others. So I think that um, even if you're finding yourself distracted in meditation and it's a constant sort of struggle to keep your focus centered, look at it as you're really lifting some strong, heavy weights in that moment and that, you know, the payoff is going to come later and it is just doesn't seem very fun in the moment because, you know, that pain when you feel when you're lifting weights really isn't fun at that moment. But once you get done, you feel great. Um, and then there was something, oh, the other thing that you said, Gary, that, um, I wanted to talk about in my experience was the more that I meditated, the more I realized that thoughts were sort of this very illusory, um, thing going on in my mind that, uh, you talked about, you realized that you aren't your thoughts. And the more I meditated, the more I realized that my thoughts were kind of this, uh, very shallow. A lot. Most of my thoughts were like this very shallow cycle of just sort of energy cycling in my mind built off of these habits that had been present for years and years. And the more I meditated and realized that those cycles were going on, some of them I was able to stop just by becoming aware of them. Some of them took a little more processing to um, figure out where the distortion was, why these cycles were going on the way that they were. And it took more mental work in order to do that. But uh, I think that the more that people meditate, the more they realize that their thoughts are um, this very shallow uh, sort of facade of who they are and what their consciousness is. And the more you meditate, the more you're able to realize that. Alrighty. Any more about meditation? <laughs> I definitely have more, but uh, in favor of moving on, I'll see if there's time to circle back later on. Okay. I mean, the rest can probably be related back to uh, meditation anyways. But the next uh, checkpoint on our trifecta is the idea of contemplation, which is a little more confusing for me, uh, especially in the context of how Ra talks about it. Because when they talk about these three things, um, a lot of time they say they use the qualifier or. And so in that quote that I read before, they say the foundation or prerequisite of these exercises is a predilection towards what may be called meditation, contemplation, or prayer. So there's a similarity in these three things, and they're sort of saying that one of these, a predilection towards one of these, or the idea of these things, is necessary. So, in your mind, what is uh, contemplation, and how is it being used in this context, Jim? Well, I would contrast it to meditation, where no thought, is the goal in meditation. In contemplation, it perhaps is more true to say that maybe one thought, so that you would be contemplating a certain concept or um, emotion or experience or person or thing, uh, and making that wh which fills your mind. And you're attempting in the contemplation to grasp a more full a measure of whatever it is you're contemplating to, to try to make it perhaps relative to your spiritual journey or to um, 
daily difficulties that don't seem to be finding a resolution. So you can contemplate this concept or whatever it is you want uh, in depth in order to try to perceive more of the basic qualities that might enhance your spiritual journey. Uh, again, I'd like to share another quote from uh, Gerald Goldsmith, my favorite author after Ra. <laughs> In the contemplation of the wonders of God's universe, we transcend the desire to inform God of anything or to ask God for anything. Such contemplation lifts us to the heights of the psalmist's vision that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In a quiet, silent walk in a park, by seashore, lake or river, in our aloneness, we catch that vision. We look up to the hills, to the mountains, to the heights of consciousness, and behold only that which God beholds, and know only that which God knows. Anything that lifts us in consciousness above the clamor of the senses and the noises of this world will serve to bring us into the presence of God. When we reach the divine heights of inspiration, we find God. God is a deep silence. God is a stillness, the stillness of all that is human. So I think contemplation is really using the mind rather than calming or quieting the mind. The mind has a, a purpose that can be uh, harnessed in its ability to focus and analyze and appreciate and um, apply uh, what we find that we are contemplating and the qualities of what we contemplate so that perhaps we can then take what we find in contemplation into our meditative state and allow a greater consciousness, shall I say, to then respond to what we have found with our own individual consciousness. So I think that there's a, a real connection between contemplation and meditation and later on prayer as well. It's a fascinating answer. Gary, what do you have? I think that they are both unified in the terms Jim described um, in terms of collected one-pointedness just with variant functions. Um, like Jim, I see contemplation as the, um, the mind, I guess I'll call it, being in a slightly more active phase, but very much focused and funneled, collected and concentrated, like Jim said, on one thought. And in that activity, an inner quietude can develop, especially the more that one explores and sticks to that one thought. I don't think it's so much an... It could be, maybe, an analytical or discursive process, but it could be just hanging on to that one concept and keeping it there and looking at it and looking at it. It could be one word and not so much branching off into related concepts or how does this compare and contrast with that, uh, but rather holding that thought and the uh, attention. And I think that the object of contemplation really matters because if one, say, contemplates the quality of love or... Uh, one contemplates the quality of domination of others, <clears throat> which I think those on the surface of self-path do are using contemplation to a high degree uh, when they focus their will upon visualizing their goals and controlling 
their catalyst and defeating their enemies. It is a form of contemplation also. And because of the object of contemplation, um, different <laughs> experiences result. And um, I think Ra's, there's that Q&A where Ra gives the general exercises to the reader. And they say, um, the first exercise is to see love in awareness in this moment. And the second exercise is to see the creator? The, the universe is one being. When a mind-body-spirit complex views another mind-body-spirit complex, see the creator. Could you give me the verbatim quote, please? <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. I was kidding. Thank you. It's it's right here on my screen. So oh. I, I didn't have that memorized. Oh, well, you could have left me feeling more impressed than I now am. Yeah, and uh, to see the self as the creator. And uh, what's the fourth one? See uh, other self? Gaze at the creation, which lies about the yeah. mind-body-spirit complex of each entity. See the creator, which is the most confusing one for me, but it still yeah. seems nice. Yeah, <laughs> I think those are all basically instructions of contemplation, not so much meditation, um, though that, that, those, that exercise can be taken into meditation, but that to me is a more active contemplation. And um, my final thought, and that is that this applies to meditation, contemplation, and prayer, is that as I understand what you could call the physics of this process, is that... Um, try to be brief, we have two streams of energy moving into our system through the two poles of our body, the, or rather our mind-body-spirit complex, our energy system, coming in through the red ray or south pole and then coming in through the violet ray or north pole. <clears throat> and uh, Ra has names for these two different types of energies. And most of us on planet Earth are working in that pranic lower energy, what Ra calls the uh, outer self um, the energy that is moving through the red, orange, and yellow rays, the first triad. And that energy, as we all know, uh, is very, when it's undisciplined, should I say, is very noisy and uh, often discordant or disharmon disharmonious or in conflict with ourselves or with others, uh, as it's typically experienced on planet Earth. And, you know, we all have all sorts of imbalances and blockages there, or most of us do. So... At, at the same time, resting within, we have this North Pole energy, and Ra has like nine different names for it, including the inner light and the inward fire, and they call it our true nature and our birthright. So we have this indwelling creator within that needs access through disciplined practices like silence. Um, opening the heart is, of course, key for the positive path. So I see meditation, contemplation, and prayer as a uniting of these two streams of energy, as a taking of all this, um, I fall back to the word noisy, uh, loud, complex energy of the lower energy centers, focusing them, quieting them, so to speak, channeling them upward so that contact can be made with the North Pole energy, which is already in meditation, already in silence or focus or, or beingness. So it's a little lead into what I understand to be something of the physics of these three practices. Yeah, the sense I'm getting from both of your answers is very along the lines of how I would relate them, and that's that they Med both meditation, contemplation, and also prayer um, are essentially ways of saying singleness of thought. Mm -hmm. And that um, 
you know, when it's silent meditation, that singleness of thought is pointed towards um, just being without any thoughts arising or, or distracting from that central being. But then contemplation is following that and utilizing that singleness of thought to um, explore certain either ideas, themes, concepts. Um, I would say that in the process I described uh, about my meditation practice, I think maybe that was a combination of meditation and also contemplation because I would start with meditation of sitting in silence and then the distraction, the distracting thoughts or the cycles that I noticed happening, I would then utilize contemplation of concentrating on those thoughts and those topics and thinking about them, sometimes either just holding them in acceptance or sometimes following the thread uh, to the deeper roots of where they were coming from. And so I think that, uh, like you were saying, Gary, it can either be analytical or it can just be um, holding a thought uh, and allowing it to exist in our minds. But also, I think that following the thread in an analytical sense uh, is contemplation. And I think that um, Ra kind of talks about this a little bit. I think it's in session five, yeah, they say, um, the prerequisite of uh, mental work is the ability to retain silence of self at a steady state when required by the self. The mind must be opened like a door. The key is silence. And these are um, the general sort of balancing exercises. And I think that essentially when they say silence, it's correct, but um, maybe a better way of looking at that would be singleness of thought. Uh, in order to do mental work, you have to be able to retain concentration upon the mind and the mental work in order to achieve it, because I don't think it's possible to do meaningful mental work um, if you're allowing yourself to be swept away by the stream of randomness that uh, is usually within our thoughts. Um, so, uh, that was it for our initial talk about uh, contemplation. Do either of you have any more to say? I, not I. Totally do, if you give me a second. It's yeah. just in my head. I thought it was important enough to say. Gary's demonstrating contemplation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's going to drive me crazy. Uh, if it comes to me, I'll, I'll bring it back up, but I'll let it go. Alrighty. Um, moving on to the third of our trifecta called prayer. Jim, how would you conceive of prayer or define prayer? Well, I think if we look at uh, meditation as listening to God and contemplation as listening to ourselves, we can look at prayer as talking to God. And I think that the most effective prayers are prayers which we offer for others. It seems to me that it's almost like a, a misuse of prayer to pray to God for something that we think we need. God, the Creator, the Spirit, created the entire universe, and it operates exactly as it should. Everything in time, the seasons in time, flowers blooming as they should, I think an entity of that nature knows what we need and will give it to us as we are needing. We don't have to ask for it. So I think that when we pray aright, 
we pray for others. And I think some of the best prayers that we can offer are prayers for those who may not seem to be our friends, might even be our enemies, for those who despitefully use us. That prayer is something that we can use to heal. Uh, we can pray that another be made well through uh, the highest and best that is in the Creator's will for that entity. We can pray for those who um, perhaps would not pray for us. And I think that that's important because it val validates the fact that we are all one being. And prayer is a way of asserting that unity at a very basic level of our consciousness. In prayer, I believe that we do enter a meditative state in order to begin to vocalize what it is we are praying for. And in that meditative state then, we can begin to access that same creator that we look for, uh, for that still small voice within in meditation. And prayers then can be a very powerful healing. Uh, Carla was uh, the head of her intercessory prayer group at the Episcopal Church at Calvary downtown for about 23 years. And um, they would receive notices from members of the congregation that a certain person was ill or having problems of one kind or another. And then she would pass that information along to the members of her intercessory prayer group. And they would pray for the people. And she said that over the years, they, they found many uh, seemingly miraculous healings had occurred uh, because they were praying that the Father's will be done in the highest and best way uh, for each entity. So that's basically my take on prayer. I begin each of my meditations with prayer. Uh, I believe that prayer is a good way to tune your mind uh, to focus upon that which is at the center of your being, that which is most important. And it sort of helps the uh, distracting thoughts to fall away and to, uh, to pray that uh, your efforts may be uh, in congruency with uh, what the, uh, the Father's will is for you. Um, the idea of uh, prayers being for and effective for others is something I'm interested in. So I am uh, want to mind that a little bit before turning it over to you, Gary. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm challenging you, Jim, but I have a question about the idea, like you said, praying for the self feels a bit like an improper use of prayer uh, because the Creator knows what would be best. Um, so then what would the effectiveness of praying for another be uh, if not, uh, if the assumption is the Creator knows what's best for us, then wouldn't the Creator know what is best uh, for them? And what is um, our prayer doing to help allow the Creator's love to flow towards that other person? Do you have, like, does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah. Um, I think the best prayer is the prayer which asks that the Father's will be done for another. And in effect, it's a reaffirmation to your own self that all is well, all is one, and all is occurring precisely as it needs to occur. And I think we pray for others 
not just for others, but to, to realize once again that this is a unified creation and that we are a part of that and that everything that happens to us happens for a purpose and that everything can teach us how to move closer to uh, the Father's will, to love, to uh, serving others, and to being more positively polarized. Um, so that's basically it. That makes sense. Uh, Gary, what are your thoughts on prayer? Mm, on, quickly, on the topic of intercessory prayer, and I wish I could have, or would have thought about this more in advance, because this is going to be clumsy and sloppy. But, um, so, we live and operate in creation, in the manifest world, and creation exists of all sorts of uh, what seem like different and discrete or related energies. And these energies are, have asymmetrical relationships with one another, um, some say, just the energy locked within physical objects, let's say, in, in our material realm. Um, you know, coal contains a certain quotient of energy versus um, a chemical reaction contains a certain amount of energy. And uh, different human beings have more, ener more vital energy than others and so forth. So there's inequalities in the distribution of energies. Um, but all this energy, of course, is uh, a prismatic product of one energy, that being intelligent energy or love light. So we can, in this finite realm, move energy. We can uh, amass energy. We can share energy. We can give energy. We can send energy. So I, my speculation is that one function of intercessory prayer is to literally gather some of that energy, whether it's coming through the self or from, you know, the one in its omnipresence and uh, focusing it and collecting it and then sending it to the object of that which is prayed for, thereby creating an ambiance or an opportunity or an opening or um, some increase of light and available opportunity for that which is prayed for. Just a thought. <clears throat> So as to prayer, I'm glad that uh, Jim went before me on this one because <laughs> my thoughts would springboard from his and I to see it, uh, I would frame it more in terms of conversation. But uh, I like expanding the scope of prayer to include the entirety of self in that like everything we're doing could be considered a prayer. Though most of the time that prayer is, um, you know, can be focused on self-interest or focused on what's happening uh, or the gains and losses of the material realm and, um, you know, defending or enhancing the separate self, but that all that energy can be lifted and pointed upwards so that conversation is happening with the creator, so to speak, from one perspective. And it... Prayer becomes a statement of self um, that one is making to the Creator, a kind of declaration, constant declaration of who I am. And there's a couple of quotes I'd like to read, and then I'll conclude my thought. Um, there's a quote channeling where they say, Worry is a disorganized and random prayer. 
the deepest inner dialogue is with the great self that overreaches and undergirds all of this. Worries and fears not only stew and seethe within the mind, they also register with the infinite one as cries of distress. However, the energy used in worrying is tangled and mazed, and the creator, although reaching within always to comfort, simply cannot move through that tangle that has stopped the inner healing, the inner vision, the inner sensing. Thusly, when the seeker sees itself in a muddle, worrying and fretting, we suggest that one resource that may aid is the memory, the remembrance of the fact that one who worries may also be one who prays and enters into conversation with the infinite creator, the greater self, of which each is an ineffable and unique portion. So... So as with meditation and contemplation, prayer takes the, the already existing energy of the self, aims it, and focuses it, and turns it into a, a declaration and statement of who I am. And there's a couple of paragraphs from Charles Eisenstein I want to read, but um, I know we're getting late into the program, so if there's time, I'll circle back to it. Uh, yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to say about prayer, though now that I said that, I'll probably talk for a long time. Um, I think my conceptualization of prayer, my idea of prayer, is a little bit unique or different because I've never felt or fully understood a sense of uh, piety, or I've never felt pious towards the Creator um, or any concept of God. I've never, I came from a very sort of anti-religious, anti-spiritual background to the Law of One, and so um, I never had the religious experience of worshiping God or worshiping the Creator. And in my own practice, that sort of worship of the Creator uh, or even a personal relationship with the Creator doesn't have a lot of context and doesn't fully land with me. But I have, in the past year or so, um, begun to understand it a little more because I did take up a pretty regular practice of prayer. I will um, pray in pretty much throughout the day, but especially in the morning and in the evening. And uh, the way I experience it is a lot like Gary described it as sort of a, um, a statement of a, an alignment, of a reinforcement of sort of ideals that I want to hold or a person that I want to be or a, um, uh, a way to sort of align with the compassion that I feel for people. Um, there's a Buddhist uh, compassion meditation that um, is really common. I don't know what you would uh, take to look it up. Uh, but um, it's basically going through various levels of uh, yourself and people around you and sort of going outward in this bubble of compassion, wishing wellness for all of them. And I find that one really beautiful and helpful because it just, it, to me, it is sort of like stating to my innermost being and also to the creator, which would be one and the same, that um, uh, I truly do wish for the well-being of these entities and the people around me and for myself. And then um, I also really enjoy uh, reciting the prayer of uh, St. Francis, which uh, Jim actually recites for us before we do the podcast, too. And um, that, I think, helps to reinforce my idea of myself 
as an instrument of uh, a greater power, an instrument of a greater peace, a greater compassion than is possible through just my single personality and my single being as a person. And so that's sort of how I've made sense of prayer and how it's been meaningful for me is um, through reinforcing and aligning with these greater desires and um, expressing to my inner self and the universe that this is what I wish. Um, so, uh, Gary, did you have more to add? I had a quote I wanted to read. It goes, uh, I don't have much to say on this subject, end quote, Austin Bridges. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, apparently you did. It was really good. I'm glad you... Like three minutes, so I think I'm good. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you said, like, uh, in describing your prayer that expands the circle of compassion to include all beings, or the Buddhist prayer that you use, you said, like, you really do want um, compassion and health and well-being for for uh, everybody you're praying for. And in that regard, I think prayer is always a work on the self, of course, as the, you know, the Confederation would say, and Jim and Carla have been talking about for years, that you know, we're always working on ourself. Uh, but in terms of prayer's outer effect in the world, there's this paragraph I'm gonna read from uh, Charles Eisenstein real quickly. He wrote an article, sorry, I forget the name, about Standing Rock when that was happening last year or the year before. And, um, He's talking about whether or not the actions that were taken there uh, have any visible results. And he says, not every nonviolent action succeeds in its explicit aims. Not every invitation, no matter how powerful, is accepted. Yet, even if the pipeline goes through, if the water protectors stay off the warpath, another kind of victory will be won, the creation of a psychic template for the future. With each choice we face, we are being asked what kind of world we want to live in. The more courage required to make that choice, the more powerful the prayer, because whoever listens to prayers knows we really mean it. Therefore, when we choose love in the face of enormous temptation to hate, we are issuing a powerful prayer for a world of love. When we refuse to dehumanize in the face of atrocity, we issue a prayer for universal dignity. When thousands of people sacrifice their safety and comfort to protect the water, a powerful prayer issues from their gathering. Someday, in some form, it will be answered. Charles Eisenstein um, talks a lot about the morphic field, Mm -hmm. and I think that is uh, in alignment with what you just read. Sort of how that would relate to prayer is that stating a prayer would basically affect your own morphic field, which in unseen ways affects the morphic fields of others around us and sort of <laughs> sort of could infect people or infect the world with whatever you are praying for. So like you said, pray, concentrating on worry, or I guess that was the quote that you're reading, concentrating on worry sort of puts that into a field that's like a literal sort of biological field around your body as the morphic field is conceived of. I don't think that it's generally accepted in science, Um, but it puts it into that field. And then that field is automatically and tacitly interacting with everything around you and imbuing everything around you with what's in the field. And so I think uh, prayer could be a way to sort of um, put our best morphic field forward. And that connects uh, briefly 
two points. One that connects to um, the fact that the fundamental operative thing in, or quality in the universe is free will itself. You know, entities must be able to chart their own course as an individual and especially as a collective, even if the collective is disharmonious and not unified. So each vote, so to speak, into that morphic field, each registration of worry or fear or love is a charting of the course and a, a shaping of that morphogen genetic, morphogenic field uh, for future uh, potentialities and manifestations, and present manifestations too. And two, real briefly, uh, I recall now that Ross says, calls, I think the, the work in the indigo ray, they use the words prayerful attention. And uh, I won't mind that here, but that is also um, to qualify attention as being prayerful and to connect it to the indigo ray. I think that's very rich for further contemplation. Yeah. Uh, Jim, do you have any more to say about prayer? Uh, just a little. Uh, just kind of taking up, uh, coincidentally, where Gary left off, uh, I was thinking about prayer being very similar to uh, white ceremonial magic which, of course, is accomplished within the indigo ray when you focus upon a certain quality uh, in a ritualized fashion. For example, the banishing ritual that we do, uh, or I do every day here, um, is actually a prayer to the Creator to offer to a certain place of working, in this case it would be our living room where we meditate and channel, um, to offer a protection to that area so that those who gather there might seek the Creator without interference from entities who would not uh, wish them well, basically. So I think all white ceremonial magic is a prayer that is very carefully crafted and repeated many times, and it has imbued within each heart that offers the image um, a request, a request to, uh, in this case, uh, to the Creator to begin with, and then to the Archangels of the Four Directions, secondarily, that um, the seeking of the Creator may be done in this place in an efficient and a heartfelt fashion, uh, full of love and protection, and the light that surrounds us all by the flaming pentagrams that we draw in that uh, ritual. So I, th I think that really, um, Prayer at its most powerful and personal is a kind of magic where we seek to create changes in consciousness at will, which is the definition of uh, magic. And uh, that's my last comment on that <laughs> for now. Um, we are running long, but I, I did want to build off of what you just said in... Um, two different ways, because uh, that was something I meant to touch on but didn't, is the idea of prayer being ritualized and the power of something that is ritualized. And you talked about that power in the white magical sense. Um, but like I tend to do, I have sort of a secular um, biological way to bring that back. If for some reason you're listening to this podcast and you don't believe in any of this silly spiritual magic stuff... Um, <laughs> The idea of ritual also holds water in neuroscience and in neurobiology, and I've referenced this plenty of times on the podcast, but our brains have a certain plasticity, and reinforcing actions or thoughts uh, 
solidifies those neural pathways in your brain. And so if you aren't praying in the sense of thinking that it will have magical effects on the world around you, um, prayer will at least uh, inevitably create pathways for whatever that prayer is about to more easily be accessed in your mind. Because the idea is that as these neural pathways are solidified, they are more easily activated, they are um, more unconsciously activated, and they sort of become the template for how our minds operate. So if you do a compassion prayer on a daily basis or multiple times a day, and really feel the compassion that you were th talking about. Um, that's another small comment I wanted to make, is I think that prayer is most effective when we do more than just recite the words, that we actually imbue ourselves with what the intention of the prayer is. As we say the words, we really feel what those words are meaning. And so if you're doing that, if you are really feeling the compassion as you pray, or you're really feeling the desire for healing and the desire for love, whatever it is you're praying for, uh, if you do that on a regular basis in a ritualized fashion, those things really become imbued in our actual biology, and it becomes the way that our biological beings operate, and not just sort of a, um, a spiritual metaphysical thing, it becomes a literal physical thing as well. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, any more from either of you before we close out the show? I think I'm done. If you guys are interested, <clears throat> uh, I had compiled a list, and it doesn't involve reading long paragraphs, but of um, every benefit that Ra named for meditation. Um, I'll run down that list real quick. Ra said it, that it's the one technique for nurturing and strengthening will and faith. Uh, the means whereby, and these are their words, all experience may be synthesized, and also catalysts most efficiently used, also and the self aided in knowing the self. They call it the uh, foundation or prerequisite to other work in consciousness, uh, such as the exercises of becoming aware of love in the moment. Um, they say without meditation, contemplation, or prayer, the data, actually Austin read this at the beginning. They, Ra says, the means whereby the original thought may be obtained and the means whereby the pathways are open to working with the higher self and the means whereby when coupled with disciplined working, the wanderer may penetrate the veil or rather the forgetting to some extent and um, they connect it to the work of that downward spiraling energy of the North Pole and say, quote, that or they say, that energy which is, quote, brought into being by the humble and trusting acceptance of this energy through meditation and contemplation of the self and of the creator. They say it is the means of working with the unmanifested self and finally something that those of our planet need constant moments of in order to balance our perpetual modes of activity. Awesome. Uh, Jim, would you like to um, have a final word for our listeners? Well, we want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to our words of uh, hopeful inspiration, uh, our opinions on how these techniques of meditation and prayer and contemplation can be used. Um, we hope that they help you a little bit further along your journey of finding an open heart and being able to love yourself and the people around you. And please know that we love you dearly. We thank you for listening to us. And um, may you have a blessed two weeks until we see you again.
You have been listening to LL Research's podcast, In the Now. If you have enjoyed the show, please visit our websites, llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting this podcast. Uh, if you'd like to hear us ramble on about a particular topic, please read the instructions on our page at www.llresearch.org podcast. New episodes are published to the archive website um, supposedly every other Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we are going to try our hardest to get back into a more regular recording schedule. Things have been quite busy and bustling around here, and it's been very difficult to get on that regular recording schedule. But we do appreciate and love doing this podcast as a service and uh, for anybody that writes in to express their appreciation or anybody who listens and appreciates we're sorry for not having uh, done it more regularly in this recent past but we're going to try harder and we will have more regular episodes up for you in the future please have a wonderful couple of weeks and we will talk to you next time Thank you.